Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, welcome to 2018. Glad to have you all here again this morning. We are beginning 2018 with uh, a new series. Uh, perhaps you have seen this postcard in your bulletin. Perhaps you've seen it out in the front. But the name of the series is Renewed. It is going to be a series that's uh, going through the book of Haggai. I know what you're thinking, another series on Haggai. But trust me, I have something to say that probably you haven't heard from the book of Haggai. No, I'm going to give you the book of Haggai, not my own thoughts. So. Uh, but if you would like to take a little time to find the book of Haggai, it's in the Old Testament, and it's very close to the back. It's uh, a small prophet. Uh, it's got exactly two chapters. It is right after the book of Zephaniah, which I know probably doesn't help you. It's right before the book of Zechariah, probably also not helpful. It's three books before the book of Matthew. So if you can find the book of Matthew, just turn back about six pages and you'll be in front of the book of Haggai. But the idea of this series is called Renewed, and we are using this image to remind us of God's power to bring new beginnings. Because as we're going to see in the book of Haggai, that is God's mission, to take this people who have kind of stalled, have found themselves a bit aimless, to remind them that God is ready to renew them that God is ready to bring new beginnings. And so the image of this tree stump with a shoot coming right up out of the middle of it is meant to remind us that there is no end, there is no status that we can find ourselves in in a personal situation or together that God cannot renew and bring life to. So as we come to this study, we're going to spend several weeks learning what God's renewal looks like, and learning how to position ourselves to enjoy God's renewal. Do you sense the need for renewal in your life? Do you sense the need for renewal in your faith? Perhaps you are in a place that feels quite hopeless. Perhaps you're in a place where you feel crushed by circumstances 
or overwhelmed by the temptation of a particular sin. Maybe you are addicted to something like pornography or some substance. And though you wake up every day saying, I don't want that to be true, you seem to fail endlessly at it, at getting over it. Well, then the message of Haggai, the message of renewal, is a message for you because it will show us that God has a new beginning for you. God has renewal in his heart for you. Indeed, in our text, we're going to see that Haggai offers, above all else, hope. It's going to show us that there is not only a God that is able, but a God that is willing to bring renewal to his people. Our text today is going to show us three evidences that God is ready to renew his people. Now this message is not just for you at the individual level. I also have this series in mind for us as a congregation, as a church. River, incidentally, is is coming up on its 18th birthday as a church. And as a church, some of you have been through much of that history. Some of you have been through only a small portion. Some of you have only been there since uh, August 6th. At any rate, uh, this church has been through successes and some struggles. Although I would say since August 6th, all success, right? Uh, But at at any rate, the successes, the struggles, the hits, the misses, we are a church that I believe is looking forward to God's renewal in us and through us in this near future. And so let us pay attention to the book of Haggai, because I think it comes very close to describing our situation as a church. To set some historical context, Haggai is a prophet in what we call the restoration period of Israel's history. Israel, of course, started with a promise given to Abraham that, his, that, he, that the covenant was made with him and that through Abraham's descendants, a nation would come And that nation, of course, became Israel, which took the geographical area of of Judah and had a kingdom that thrived for several hundred years. But then, because the people lost their way, that kingdom was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. And then as sin continued to uh, leaven through the people of God, eventually God brought judgment on these people. He took the northern kingdom away by the the empire of Assyria. And then about a hundred years later, in uh, 787, God brought Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to the doorstep of Judah and Jerusalem and smote it. The people of Judah were completely destroyed And they were carried away into exile to live in the foreign land of Babylon for decades, for nearly 70 years. And that is the point that we meet the prophet Haggai. After those 70 years, something absolutely astounding happens. The king of Babylon is destroyed by another more powerful king called Cyrus, who brings in the empire of Persia. And the, and the king Cyrus announces it in 538, his very first year, 
as the king of Persia, he makes this statement, which is recorded for us in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. This decree of Cyrus is telling the people of Judah who have been in in Babylon in exile under a foreign king and under a foreign system of gods, you get to go home. You get to go back to your motherland. You get to rebuild the temple and go back in a great measure to the life that you had before you were conquered. An amazing turn of events. And so the people have returned in 538 B.C. And when they get there, they immediately get to work on the temple, but soon that work comes to an end. And there is a 16-year period where no work on the temple has been done. And that's when Haggai shows up. Haggai has come to restore these people's mission of rebuilding the temple. In a sense, Israel's story at this point in Haggai's uh, ministry is similar to the sorry portion of Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You Will Go. Are you familiar with Oh, the Places You Will Go? Great book. If you graduated in the last 30 years, you probably have one or two or three or four copies of it. But the story, it's a wonderful story, is about the promise and the potential that you have as an individual and the places you will go and the kind of the unbounded excitement of starting your life. And there's one sinister chapter in that book. It's called The Waiting Place that Dr. Seuss wants to warn us from. He says of The Waiting Place, it's for people just waiting, waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come, or the rain to go, or the phone to ring, or the snow to snow, or waiting around for a yes or no, or waiting for their hair to grow. Everything is just waiting. Really, that describes Israel in Haggai's day. They are in the waiting place. They've been back for nearly 18 years, but they find themselves not having made much progress in that time. Haggai finds them, quite literally, waiting around. So I guess the question I want to ask of us this morning, do we find ourselves in the waiting place? Is there an attitude of waiting and seeing amongst us? Do we respond to opportunities for service and participation with let someone else do it? Or, sorry, I'm just busy right now. Or, I wish I could, but this just isn't the season of my life to be involved. In a sense, the book of Haggai is about getting God's people out of the waiting place. This book is about moving us from waiting to working. How does he do this? Haggai is going to exhort these people, to get back to the work of their mission, which was to rebuild the temple. Now, why is the temple so important? From our perspective as as, uh, Christians, 
The temple doesn't serve a purpose anymore, so what makes the temple something we should pay attention to? Well, in Haggai's day, we need to recognize that the temple was the place God had established for his people to know him and to make him known. Thus, the mission in Haggai's day really isn't much different than our mission that we have, which is to know God and to make him known through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So really the question that we have as we begin our study on Haggai is, are you ready to move from waiting to working? If you are, then let us look at our text and see three evidences that God is ready to renew his people. So if you have your Bible in front of you, I gave you, I don't know, more minutes than I probably should have, to find it. But I do want you to follow along with me. We are going to be going through the first four verses of Haggai as we see these three evidences that God is ready to renew his people. The first evidence that comes out of these verses in Haggai that God is ready to renew his people is this. He sustains his preserving grace. He sustains his preserving grace. And here we're focusing on just the first half of the very first verse where we are told in the second year of Darius the king. The existence of the book of Haggai is an amazing testimony to the preserving grace of God. Haggai is writing in the year 520 B.C. to God's covenant people, Israel, a people that are in their 15th century of existence. And what an improbable Fact that these people have made it 15 centuries. The story of Israel begins with God making a promise to an obscure man named Abram who was sonless and aged and had a a wife who could not bear children. And he said, you are going to be the father of a great nation. And that was way back in the early 2000 B.C. 2100 B.C. That promise was made, and that promise has been sustained. It was sustained even as God's people are taken off to the nation of Egypt, where they then become slaves, where Pharaoh has determined that he is going to slaughter every male son. And even though that happened under the great superpower of Egypt, God sustains his grace and brings them out through Moses. He delivers them the promised land, the land of of Israel, a land that blesses them with everything that they need, a land where they continue to disobey and act treacherously and unfaithfully to God. You read the book of Judges and you see cycle after cycle of the people going after false gods, finding themselves in disobedience. As I read the book of Judges, the question that always comes to the head of my mind is, why does God stick with these people? Because they're dastardly people in the book of Judges. And yet we see after all of these sins and all of this treachery that God continues to preserve his people through this period. He preserves them through the monarchy. He brings them first Saul, who was a disappointment who did not lead them with faithfulness. And then he brings them David. 
And that period was sweet, but it was short. Then the kingdom divides itself and goes to war against itself. This small little kingdom of a few million people is constantly at the threat of extinction from empires far larger and far more powerful than them. And if you know of all the other little nation states that existed contemporary with Israel, they don't exist anymore. The Philistines got wiped out. The Amorites got wiped out. All of these little nations, Moab, they don't exist anymore because the powers of Assyria and Babylon, they were so great. They removed them from the face of the earth. And yet we see that God preserves his people even in exile. They are carried off from their country. And we read, uh, if I kept that, I don't think I did. Excuse me. No, I'll just have to tell you what happened. They took uh, Babylon. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar came up to the edge of Jerusalem. And he didn't only take the people. He completely destroyed the city. He tore down every great house. He tore down the temple of God so that it was a rubble, a complete ruins. And even with all of that, which most of us would say, well, that's curtains for this nation. God sends the prophet Jeremiah and assures them that they will spend 70 years in exile. But at the end of those 70 years, God's plan is to renew them, to restore them. And he does just that by sending Cyrus in 538, who issues the decree that we have already read. And God's people are now brought back to Jerusalem. Fifteen centuries of improbable, unbelievable turns of events. God's covenant faithfulness is manifest throughout. The beautiful thing for us as we think on this story is that the preserving grace that God shows his people Israel is the same preserving grace that he extends to us in the new covenant. We are told in Matthew 16, 18, that the church will not have the gates of Hades prevail against it. Christ has promised that his church will survive as long as history continues. His preserving grace is the reason that all of the heresies, all of the the infighting, all of the major black eyes that the church has committed over its 20 centuries have not undone it completely. That it continues, that it is preserved. God's people, we recognize, owe their existence not to themselves, but to God's covenant faithfulness. This is grace. This is grace. Every day is a gift. We live under the pleasure of a sovereign creator. Any day that he says, that's enough for you, your days come to an end. We need to recognize that every day that we have been given is a gift. Every day that we are preserved, is undeserved. Each day then that we have is good evidence that God remains willing to renew us and that he has something for us to do. What does this mean practically as we go through our lives? Let me suggest two things. First, if every day is a gift, 
then every day should receive our thankfulness. Every day we should recognize God's goodness in it. Even, even the days that seem hard and unbearable, that period of exile, that period where the, the Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed and there was no semblance seeming of any national pride left to have, we read Jeremiah in the midst of a book called Lamentations where he grieves over the condition of, his peop- of the people and their, and their sorrowful state. He is yet able to say in the midst of all of that, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah recognized that every day that he gets up, every day that he sees a sunrise, every day that he has been given is a gift. And every day has God's mercies upon it because there is no guarantee of tomorrow. That you woke up today is God's blessing of another day. And wouldn't you rather have another day than not have another day? I've never met somebody who says, boy, just, I'm ready to go. I I should say that I, I, I have heard things like that. But what I mean is most of us, most days, want another day. And really what we want is to get rid of whatever is pushing us down, whatever is afflicting us. If we could get rid of that, we'd say, yeah, give me another day. And so most of us, I would say nearly all of us, live with a desire, let us have another day. And every day that we receive is a gift. That is the mentality that we must have, that we need to thank God for his preserving grace. But not only do we need to live thankfully that God has preserved us, we need to live responsively. We must respond to God's preserving grace. We cannot presume upon it. We can't neglect it. We must say, God has given me another day. What for? After I say thank you, how do I give this day to God? It's very important that we respect God's preserving grace, that we do not take advantage of it. As Jesus came to tell the church of Ephesus, In the book of Revelation, after talking about their uh, many accomplishments, he reminded them that they had yet departed from their first love. That the book, that this church of Ephesus had come to a place where they had cooled on their passion for Jesus. And it was a great concern. Jesus said to them, after noting that they have lost their first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. The lampstand represents the spiritual life, the existence of that church. God is is telling this church, I am preserving you. To be a witness, I am preserving you to be consumed with passion for my son Jesus. And if you fail to do that, 
Don't count on tomorrow. Don't count that the days will keep coming where you can use the time I have given you to do whatever you desire to do. If you are going to waste the precious gift of today, then maybe your todays are numbered. So the question that comes to us is, how do we respond as a church and as an individual to God's preserving grace? Let me say this much. If you are right now standing outside of a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, if you have not said, you are my Lord and Savior, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for purchasing me from hell. If you have not given yourself to Jesus Christ, you are on dangerous ground. And you are on borrowed time. Don't waste one more day of God's preserving grace. Confess your need for Christ and let him renew you. But as a church, we need to recognize every day that we have is a gift and we cannot afford to waste them. We must, as a church, be consumed with the question, how do we fulfill our mission here and now? How do we find ourselves faithful? How do we stir one another up to the love of Christ? How do we avoid the condition of the church of Ephesus. And that requires each and every one of us to take the responsibility of being a part of this church and say, I am going to cherish and make the most of God's preserving grace. So that is the first evidence that God uses, that God shows he is ready to renew his people. The second is that he supplies his providential care. God supplies his providential care as the second evidence that God is ready to renew his people. And here we are looking at the second half of that first verse where we are told what might seem to be pretty uh, unimportant minutia, but we are told that the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, We're given a a list of characters here. And we're wondering, what does that have to do? How does that play into God's plan to renew his people? Haggai is showing in this verse God's providential care on display. Look carefully at what is being reminded to us. These people who were in exile have been brought back to the land. They have been brought back with safe passage. They have been protected by an edict, by a decree of the king of Persia. They have even been supported financially. Zerubbabel. Who is Zerubbabel? Well, we will find as we go through this book that he is a descendant of King David. And why is that significant? What is the promise that God made to David? That you would always have a son on the throne. How amazing 
in the attempts of Babylon to destroy and smite and end the people of Israel, that the chosen seed of David has been preserved. Not only has, they, has that seed been preserved, but they have been brought back with the people, and he is acting as the governor. They have someone, a descendant of David, acting as governor, as leader of the nation or of the people. And then we are also told that this man Joshua of Jehozadak has come back, and he is the high priest. He is not just somebody with Levite blood. He is actually a descendant of the Zadokites, one of the most faithful priestly families in the history of Israel. They were faithful to David when there was an insurrection against him. And here we have the Aaronic priest, the high priest from the, the pure line of, of the, the Zadokites to be overseeing the people of God and their religious activities. So what has God done? He has put them back in the land of promise. He has protected them internationally. He has given them a ruler who is from the house of David. He has given them a priest who is faithful from the house of Aaron. As we go through this book, we are going to see that God has providentially provided everything that they need. God is in control of all things in this book. We will see that he is in control of the crops and the weather and the nations, that he is working through all of this to care for and renew his people. In, in, in the book of Haggai, God has used his providential care to open wide the opportunity for his people to rebuild the temple. Wider than wide. All of this has been orchestrated by God's providential hand. We see in the book of Haggai what we are told by Paul in Romans 8, chapter 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God's providence is here working to bring renewal to the people of God. And we can claim that assurance that God is working for our good on more certain ground than even Haggai could. We claim it upon the purchased blood of Christ. That God has determined to work all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All of life, the good and the bad, God has determined it will work for your good. It will work to conform you to the image of Christ. So even the hardships, even the difficulties, even the years in Babylon are part of God working together for the good of those people so that they would be ready for the restoration. And that's what we see here, his providential care so that this temple could be rebuilt and these people could be restored God's providence then reminds us of of two things. God has made us for a time and a place. And second, that our purpose everywhere and always is to seek and serve God. Listen to what Paul said in his sermon in Athens. 
Acts chapter 17, verse 26. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their, feel their way toward him and find him. Paul is saying what I have just told you, that God's providence reminds us that God has made us for a time and a place and that our purpose is everywhere and always to seek and serve God. There is nothing accidental about you being in Prairieville. There is nothing accidental about you being at River Community Church. There is nothing accidental about the address of this church or the time of this church. It is explicitly clear that we exist here and now, that we must here and now serve God and seek God with all that we have. To be confused about that point is to choose extinction. So, given your situation, your time and place, and in submission to God's word, let me ask you, how has the Lord provided for you to serve him? What should you be doing as a response to God's providential care and his preserving grace in your life. This, I think, is illustrated so fascinatingly in that book of Esther, a book that never mentions the name of God, and yet God is everywhere in that book. We find that the young Queen Esther has been brought from obscurity to be the wife of the king of Babylon. A surprising thing. He, he just caught her fancy. And she became one of his uh, cherished wives. And there's a scene where all of Israel, all the people of Jewish blood, are going to be exterminated, are going to be destroyed because of the anger of a certain official. And Esther is in the king's house, is at the king's side. And her uncle says to, to her, Make sure you know why you were there. Verse uh, Esther 4.14, If you keep silent, he says, at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What is shown in the book of Esther is that God, by his providence, has brought each and every one of us to a certain time and a certain place. For such a time as this, River Community Church exists. And we must not fail to seize that moment. For God's kingdom will advance. But if River fails to seize that moment, we are worthy of the same threat that Esther receives. We may perish. Let us hold fast to God's providential care and seek to serve him and to seek him here and now. So that is the first two evidences. The first, he sustains his preserving grace. The second, he supplies his providential care. But there is a third. The third is that he sends his prosecuting word. 
The third evidence that God is ready to renew his people is he sends his prosecuting word. And we see Haggai's ministry. The word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai. So the people had started, when they got back in 538 B.C., they had started well with rebuilding the temple. They began putting it in place and laying the foundation, and you can read about this in Ezra chapter 3 and chapter 4. But soon enough, opposition came in the form of the Samaritans who worked with political maneuvers and worked with different uh, mechanisms to oppose Israel's rebuilding of the temple. And so they stopped. They stopped around around year 536. And for 16 years, these people had done nothing on the temple. The people had decided it wasn't time to rebuild. It wasn't time. That seemed to be the consensus as verse three, or sorry, verse two says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The time has not come. Why do they say the time has not come? Well, there was opposition at one point. It's difficult work. If we look at the rest of the book of Haggai, it appears that things were not economically prosperous. Things were a bit difficult financially. They had come to the conclusion, based on these things as they looked around their situation, that the time just wasn't right. Now notice the, the, the idea here. Nobody is disagreeing that the temple needs to be rebuilt. But it's not good time. It's not the right time. The time would be better later. Do you see how it's a pious way of saying no? We are not going to obey. Perhaps the the people were just dealing with a procrastinating spirit. You know, the idea of just putting off and putting off and putting off. Because, of course, the timing is never right today. Now, I confess, I was preparing a great illustration about procrastination right here, but I never got around to it. So we're going to have to move, move on. So when the people are around saying time to rebuild, it's just not time. What happens? The word of God by Haggai comes. And he asks a question from God back to the people who have been going around chatting to each other. It's not time. It's not time. Not time yet. Not, not a good time. And the word of God says to them, Is it time to dwell in your paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? Do you see what God's word has done there? It has exposed the faultiness and the fallacy of this excuse. Because for all of the opposition, for all of the difficulty, for all of the economic hardship that these people had to point to why they could not do what they needed to do for the house of God, they had somehow been able to build their houses and not only build their houses, but even panel them with some luxuries. Is it time for you to be in these paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? That is the question that God is asking. 
You have time and energy for yourselves, but for me, you always come up short. Does this not reveal the blackness of our heart? We twist God's grace and his providence to serve our ends, to pad our comforts, to avoid doing something hard. We have taken his providence, we have taken his preserving grace, and if we use that to become closer to him, to increase our service to him, no, we have used it to panel our houses. Not time. It's not time. Where are you using this excuse? Where are you using this excuse? It's not time to talk about Jesus. It's not time to confront this sin. It's not time to repent. It's not time to read my Bible and pray. It's not time for a mission trip. It's not time for me to serve. It's not time. What would the Word of God say to your excuses? Paneled houses. God's word authoritatively judges our lives. God speaks directly to our lives. He points directly at where we are unfaithful. He says, what about your paneled houses? God's word is a prosecuting word. It comes to convict us of our unfaithfulness, of our disobedience. It will look at your time. It will look at your hobbies. It will look at your pleasures. It will look at your resources and your home. And it will know who's first. It will know whether your paneled houses are more important than God's house. That is what the word of God is. It is a prosecutor that is meant to bring conviction. And I think if there is a concern that I have as a preacher in this place, in this time, in this country, that too many treat God's word as a plaything and not as a prosecutor. We are cutesy and cuddly with it. We put God's word on keychains, on wall art, on pillows. We listen to self-help sermons and soft and cushy devotionals. But do we let the word say, what about your paneled houses? We avoid that power from the word because we chop it up into happy little encouraging sound bites and our paneled houses only get more paneling but here is what the word of God is according to Hebrews the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart the word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart it gets right in there And the only protection you have from it is to not read it, 
is to not let it examine you. The word isn't here to make you feel good about yourself as you are. It is to show you your need to be saved and to repent. And if the way you were reading the word is not bringing you to repentance, is not bringing you to conviction, then you have neutered it. And it will not do you any good. So does the word prosecute you? Does the word correct you? Does it have the authority to speak to you and your paneled houses? It must if you're going to be renewed. There is no question about the time as we stand here in the New Testament era. Galatians 4.4 says this of us, the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The fullness of time has come. There is no more waiting to do. God has made us sons and heirs by the gospel. Therefore, our lives must be consumed with the household of God. It is time. There is nothing left to wait for. So as we conclude, let me ask, can we lay hold of these three evidences in our life? Can we lay hold to them in the life of river? Have we been preserved by his grace? Have we been cared for by his providence? Have we heard his prosecuting word? If so, God is ready to renew you. God is ready to renew us. God is ready to make his name great in our midst. He is ready to work through us to bring the gospel to the perishing. As God spoke timelessly in Malachi chapter 3, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Is that word not true for us today? What then must we do? It's very simple. Stop putting off your obedience. Stop putting off your repentance. Stop putting off the next thing that must be done as you seek to know God and serve Him. Lastly, there are some here who have been preserved by God's grace to hear the gospel message today, but have not yet put their faith in it. So I want you to hear these words from Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We appeal to you, Not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What is the gospel but that God has sent his Son out of his love for you to die on the cross to pay for your sins, to wash you clean of all debt and penalty in his holy court, and to be raised from the dead three days later, to be seen visible by many witnesses so that you could hear the message 
That if you repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You will be forgiven of every sin. You will have eternal life. But I have to tell you, this offer will someday end. And we don't know what your last day is. It is in front of you now. You can be saved today. So I ask you, what are you waiting for? Will you call upon the name of the Lord? Will you give your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior? The Lord is ready to save and renew you. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word that is living and active. We confess that it is uncomfortable sometimes and we would like to hide from it. But it comes from the mouth of the one who hung on the cross and said, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And so we know that your word is good and that your word is from a heart of unsearchable love. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear a heart to cherish and love, and hands to respond appropriately to what you have said to us today. Father, I pray, renew us. We know by your preserving grace and by your providential care and by your prosecuting word that you stand at the door. So, Father, I pray, let us open our hearts to your way and your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.